Dropout Podcasts. Hello and welcome to Adventuring Academy. My name is Brendan Lee Mulligan. I am so excited to welcome our special guest today, uh, Peter Warren. Thanks so much for being here, Peter. Thanks, man. Uh, Peter is a screenwriter and television writer and a proficient dungeon master uh, and a friend of mine going back many years. Peter, thanks so much for coming by. Thanks so much for having me. Um, We're so excited to have you on the show today. I wanted to talk a little bit about, well, first of all, I wanted to check in something we, because we've been hanging out for a second before uh, the podcast started. I wanted to check in. You sent me one of my favorite ideas at the minute I saw it. I was like, I have to do that, which was a cheat sheet for continuing a tabletop role-playing game in character live action at a Ren Fair. Yeah. I, this is interesting. You and I talked about it, and you, correct me if I'm wrong, have a background in LARPing. That is correct. I, your boy LARPs. Uh, <laughs> and has, for many years, I was actually back at uh, LARP camp this summer and had one of the best days of my life, which was I was LARPing in a field in upstate New York at one o'clock in the morning, and later that day was at San Diego Comic-Con uh, playing a TTRPG with the lovely McElroys of the Adventure. Amazing. Uh, what a good day. So, I, I don't know, but I may have just accidentally invented LARPing. You, <laughs> like, you would know, and I wouldn't. But yeah, this started with... You know, I had my home game mm-hmm. with my party, and I am usually the instigator of dragging us to do things, including starting this home game to begin with, because my uh, the people that I play with are all people that were new to D&D. Um, and so I wanted us to all go to the Renaissance Fair in upstate New York, um, as any self-respecting Dungeons & Dragons party should. And so naturally I wanted to sort of incorporate this into the flow of the game. Uh, and so found a way to sort of incorporate a local festival mm-hmm. into uh, what was going on in the story. But I wanted to have some sort of rule set that could be used, uh, you know, so that we weren't just doing something like, you know, sitting down at a table and playing a little bit of D&D while we were there. Like, was there a way to encourage people to sort of keep in character while we were there um that wasn't that was somewhere i think in between probably what larping is again i'm not someone who has larped um i've not done the gentleman's sport of larping or (laughs) whatever it is but so i wanted to sort of the game of kings exactly exactly. (laughs) so but i wanted to find a way that we could sort of have the the game on foot you know um it's funny actually i looked so yeah i I drew up this little simple rule set that also found a way to sort of translate currency into real life currency so like if you spent money in the real world at the renaissance fair it was deducted from your inventory there was a way to sort of do that Um, and also in general and this was just a fun thing to encourage role playing i awarded experience points if you did cool stuff that rules which rules and it's funny i actually looked at um someone's like uh they like kept some notes of things that they had earned experience points for last night and when i looked at it it just said huzzah five experience points and i was like what what is that and she was like i said huzzah and you gave me five experience points and i was like that's solid dming right there that's what that is yeah 
so I, I do think I should refine this rule set. We could probably share it. I don't know if you have the means to do so. Yes, we do. But, um, we'll share it yes. on Discord, probably. Uh, so it was great. And it's something I encourage people to do as a way to sort of get your pasty sheltered nerds out of the kitchen and into another incredibly nerdy sheltered environment. Uh, I love, and that's what we're trying to do is shuttle nerds from one nerd environment to another. Yes. Uh, I love that idea. There, it's very fun too to think about like um, going on these sort of adventures. It's definitely listen. I would definitely qualify that as LARPing. Uh, uh, LARPing it can go from the extremely mechanical and basically like borderline tabletop. You know, played old like vampire parlor games, which is sure. essentially cosplaying while tabletop role playing right. in three rooms instead of one room, right? All the way to LARPs that are essentially poems. Just you, I've I've read LARPs where it's like, here's a LARP I wrote, and you're like, this is a beautiful poem. Yeah, I don't necessarily know how I would play this right but i'm about to cry this is a very yeah. beautiful poem yeah um and so larp is a big wonderful all-encompassing medium um but i think it's it's wonderful also to get your crew out in this situation i love the idea also of spending real money because you said that if they bought something that was feasibly in game they would get to keep like if they bought if i like dropped a couple hundred dollars on a sword you I got would, a sword in your inventory <laughs> yeah absolutely well for sure i mean i wanted to also figure out a way to do that that didn't send things off the rails, which mm -hmm. is, of course, like a big part of DMing is you're like, how do I introduce something cool that doesn't torpedo everything that's going on? And so I wanted to like encourage people to interact with the fair the way that you would mm -hmm. in a game, which is you know, it includes things being sort of like cost prohibitive. Like right. you're probably not going to spend like 1500 bucks on a suit of armor the same way that you wouldn't necessarily spend a like, hundred gold pieces. Exactly. On. Yeah. Um, and so like figuring out this like currency exchange ratio was kind of tricky, especially for someone like me that has a BFA in screenwriting <laughs> and like currency exchanges isn't exactly my forte, but I figured it out. So, and it worked really well. And so it still encouraged people to like utilize this <laughs> environment the same way that you are in Encouraged to utilize a cool environment in the game when you're like, oh, we're in a town, we should buy shit. You know, like we should go get food or go whatever. Um, and so it was nice to see them be like, oh, I actually have been needing a cloak, you know? I love that. Speaking about a BFA in screenwriting, I would love to hear because. Highly recommended, maybe. <laughs> I also have a BFA in screenwriting. Uh, Do you? I don't think we've talked about this. We have we not? I have the uh, yes. I have a bachelor's from SVA in screenwriting, and I did that right. because and I did I did it in screenwriting and directing because I had enough credits available to do both because I had done I had done going to school for philosophy prior to that at SUNY Ulster. Got it. Uh, so look at us, just a couple of screenwriting BFAs. How about it? Everything I needed to learn about Everything life. turned out great. <laughs> Sitting here next to a skull in a helmet. Uh, what's wild about it, though, is is um, I feel like, because obviously your career as a screenwriter uh, uh, presages your your uh, career as a dungeon master, yeah, uh, which is which is flipped around for me uh, in terms of what what came first. Oh, interesting. And like I was DMing before sure. I was screenwriting, right? Um, in screenwriting, it's very interesting because I would characterize screenwriting as focusing tremendously on efficiency of storytelling, right? More so than a series of novels necessarily, which there can be some flexibility in terms of page length or right. how much story you're trying to tell. Um, 
what is it like to go from something as precise and uh, with so many targets it has to hit as a screenplay to the type of storytelling that you're doing in a game of D&D, which is impossibly collaborative. And like you're saying, how do you keep something on the rails where you don't even have control over where the camera goes? It follows sure. p the PCs that don't know the story. Yeah. I mean, D&D in general, but DMing specifically is... A really great thing for writing and screenwriting in particular. Um, I think one of the things that and you and I have talked about this a little bit. One of the things that makes DMing very unique is it's incredibly generous as a form of storytelling, meaning it's wildly audience focused. Like compared to other forms of writing and storytelling, like when you sit down, typically, and I think other forms of storytelling should be more like this. And so I think as I've DM'd more, I've become more like this as a writer, hopefully. But generally, the idea um, or sort of the belief with writing is like you sit down because you're like, I got a thing I want to say, or like there's a thing I want to do. And it's like all about me and the thing that I want to make. Like I've got a story and I'm going to tell it to you. And uh, DMing just doesn't work that way. Like you sit down in a way that's highly cognizant of other people. What are they interested in? What are they about to do? What can I do to help them tell this story? What can I do to make this story the best for them? As a TV writer, as a movie writer, it's actually not that different if you're doing it right. You know, like instead of coming in and being like, here's the thing I got, I want to do this. I'm going to tell this story right into your fucking face. You know, <laughs> instead of being like, what is, you know, going on, you know, with an audience? How, where are they at? Um, which doesn't mean that we're sort of pandering or, uh, or catering in that way, but coming at it in a, a much more sort of generous spirit is something that I think we naturally do in D and D because we have to, but carries over a lot into other forms of writing. That's um, beautiful. I think that's profound, and I think what you're saying is too like the generosity of spirit you're talking about is almost as simple as just changing up in your head almost what your goal is. You're just changing your motivation of like, of going like, oh, right, I can't divorce the story I'm trying to tell from the experience of these people because they're literally at the table with me. I can watch as they get bored or invested. Yeah. Which is a, honestly, a privilege and a gift it's that humbling. I, that I wish was available when you're sitting in the computer sure. by yourself trying to bang out a novel or whatever. Yeah. Um, there's a it, it creates sort of there's like a biofeedback loop mm -hmm. a little bit too, yeah. um, which I think can be sometimes challenging to people, but it's also sort of the most exciting and and best part is like you're right in it. You know what I mean? It's like it would be the equivalent of me going and sitting in a movie theater with an audience all around me, writing what's going on on screen. And there's actually an interesting thing, and by interesting I mean horrific, um, which is <laughs> when you create a pilot at you, networks do this more so. Mm -hmm. It goes through a process called testing, which is after you've shot the pilot, they will take it and they will screen it for test audiences to sort of see how they react. And these are done usually in testing facilities in different parts of the country. They'll do it in Vegas, they'll do it in Chicago, and they'll do it in North Hollywood. And it's very, it's an imperfect system and it's brutal because it's partly predicated on like who's free in the middle of the day in North Hollywood and needs 50 bucks. So it's like the audience also, it can be a little bit 
wild times it, you know it's, it's very selective it's, it's very not... selective and you're behind to a glass and you watch this go down and they as they watch the pilot are given um like a little knob to turn towards like positive and negative and it's just like as you like stuff you go up and down and it generates for you behind the glass a sort of overlay of your pilot with a graph and you watch essentially kind of the needle like rise and drops like they like that joke it goes up now they don't like this character it goes down it's awful it's it's terrible and it's sort of a horrible system because obviously it's just not really reflective of like how we consume story where it's like that setup was boring but that punchline was funny can we make the setup funny and you're like well that's not how life works you know what i mean there's a little God, bit of that what a perfect example of like you know we would be getting a lot more laughs if instead of setup punchline it was just punchline punchline exactly right. exactly there's, there's a little bit of that but at the same time in some ways that's kind of what D is like is like you're right there with them feeling what people are responding to right you, you know you and i talked at one point that other forms of storytelling i think i said this to you it's like i'm gonna make something with pieces that i brought from home and D D is like i'm gonna make something with pieces that you brought from home yeah you know? absolutely well and i think too there's something interesting because the process you're describing and testing for a sitcom which is obviously toxic is actually very healthy in improv and yeah. it's always why i've people sometimes you're to people, because uh, I'll get people saying like, "Do you do stand up?" And I'm like, yeah. "Mostly no, I don't do stand up. I like doing improv." And I will honestly say like, I have zero stage fright when it comes to improv, and a little bit more when it comes to stand up. Which partially that's just due to lack of practice, but also there's an element where it's like, how could you be afraid doing improv if I'm doing something that they don't like? I'll change it. Sure. And there's an element I think of being locked into something and and having that thing of like oh they didn't like that character they're gonna hate the second act or you know what i mean like yeah. what do you do when you're watching the first screening of phantom menace and jar jar comes on and people are like what the fuck and then you're yeah. like oh he's in this a lot more yeah yeah, right? yeah, yeah. uh as opposed to something about the idea of D&D being extemporaneous means that the feedback is something that you get to incorporate immediately yeah. and feed back into the narrative. Um, and that's very much an improv thing because I have an improv background as well. Um, unlike you, I have the sense to be ashamed of it um, <laughs> and hide it. So that's where you and I are a little different. But it's very much sort of like improv has, is a wildly generous spirit of storytelling. Like you have to come in incredibly hyper aware of your partner and what they are bringing in. You know, it's sort of a one on one thing to not sort of barnstorm with like I got a thing I want to do you know what I mean and instead of like oh you brought what you brought this what is this oh it's lovely you know what I mean mm -hmm. like that sort of uh, very accepting spirit is a hundred percent you know how we tell stories in in D&D &D. Mm -hmm. you know when characters are introducing um, bits in themselves or exploring parts of your story you're like wow what did you oh look at that over there that is cool let's follow it you know mm -hmm. like that all of that um is it really is a separate sort of path than the sort of typical narcissism of storytelling, you know, which is like sit down, shut up. I'm gonna, I got something to tell you. I you love, know? and I love that you keep talking about. There's, there's an interesting dichotomy that you're presenting of like the need for expression versus the generosity of what we call listening, which I think is kind of beautiful because I've never, never sort of applied that improv note to it. But yeah, the better part of DMing is listening. 
Like, it's not about coming up with stuff. It's about actually noticing what your players are doing and what they want, which requires a level of empathy that can be a little intimidating. Right. Uh, but there's, I think, in, in that thing of like, I got something I want to say. Like, I got to express something. Yeah. There's a, it weirdly it connects in my head to this old acting note that I love, which is, um, I think one of the most useful lessons of storytelling that I've taken from DMing is that ability to center your point of focus on the other rather than yourself. Uh, because when I think about DMing and think about like, I'm so rarely thinking, there's almost something Machiavellian or manipulative about it where I'm kind of looking at someone and being like, I see you, I understand what's going on with you, how do I make you feel something? Yeah. Where it's so other focused that I'm not really considering myself. There's a great old acting note that makes me think of, which was the, it's the idea of, it's kind of honestly a note about manipulation, but it has to do with like an amateur actor, uh, if they want to make someone cry, will start crying. But that's not what makes people cry. Right. Right, like if you want to do a sad scene, don't start feeling sad. Like, in other words, it's something that might not occur to people, but you don't get someone to feel an emotion by feeling that emotion hard at right. them. Yeah, uh, and I think that that same sort of acting principle is at work when you're DMing a lot, and it feeds into all kinds of storytelling where you're more hyper focused on like, cool, what actually makes someone sad what actually makes someone afraid yeah um i i mean i think that's sort of where we come in as opposed to because you know where we sort of back off of the extreme of just like we're here to see what they want to do so let's all just show up sit down and be like i don't know you got any ideas for adventures mm -hmm. is providing people with the structure to be creative you know mm -hmm. like everyone who's Anyone who's like done a project knows that like the worst thing you can do is be like you can do whatever you want and it's <laughs> fine, you know. And obviously that in some ways is like the beauty of Dungeons and Dragons. But one of the best things we can do for people is is bring enough structure for it to be stimulating. You know, like we're building something with the pieces that they bring, but our side is being like, hey, want to put those pieces in this box or like what if do you have any ideas for pieces that are based off of this you know mm -hmm. and, and start to sort of you know create you know give them the sort of um like airspace um to do something cool like create a sort of a structured and safe environment for that creativity um so it's sort of like a dance you know mm -hmm. um, of like meeting people where they're at and seeing what they bring and also bringing enough to like spark that I love that because it is true. Like nothing's more terrifying than a blank page, and a lot sure. of what you are trying to—I mean, it's my whole career and what I do every day. But yeah, definitely, <laughs> totally, yeah, awesome. It's not—it's not paralyzing or problematic. No. <laughs> it's cool. Uh, it's that feeling of like, yeah, it's you know, imagination. The sky is not the limit. Like even in terms of like anything can happen. No, not anything can happen. You guys are going to be some adventurers with a given number of abilities in a world where there's many more people than you probably, right? Yeah. Like there are these limitations that get put in and the, the weird balance of like trying to give that ceremonial opposition of like, yeah, your powers and abilities and creativity matter more to you when you're encountering resistance. Sure. Uh, which is always the thing too. I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but um, 
so it, it, Peter and I actually first met uh, th- through the auspice of Strong Female Protagonist, the, yeah. which is the web comic uh, that I worked on. Brandon's with- amazing comic. Go oh, read it. Shit. Fantastic. Uh, Brandon Lee Mulligan, Molly Knox Ostertag, <laughs> two people, six names, all the feelings <laughs> in the world. Sadly, on hiatus right now, we are going to return to it and Never mind. It. Don't go read it. It's on uh, hiatus. It's fine. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, we would constantly get comments on that uh, of like, of like, oh, like I hope they like, I hope they let you know the characters be happy after a certain amount of time. I hope they let them feel uh, yeah. some kind of happy because there's a lot of hardship the characters go through, and um, I always remember hearing that and be, and this is like the worst like villain part of me, but I was like, you're a liar. You don't want these characters totally. happy. Oh, I mean, if you spend a little time in network television development, mm-hmm. um, a note that comes up a lot is wanting to see people be very successful at their jobs mm-hmm. um, on, on the premise that like success and happiness, you know, like can they just be like a sort of like rich, successful good looking, you know, that this is very empathetic, you know? Um, the reality is like, n- uh, no. First of all, everyone hates that guy, you know? Like, everyone hates that guy. But it's it's exactly what you're talking about, which is like, it's seeing people struggle through opposition and the structure of opposition and the problem solving in it that is incredibly engaging from the player side as well, yeah. right? Whether you're like reading a comic, whether you're in a you know um, like in a scenario in a game, whether it's a television thing, whatever, it's like mm-hmm. meet this guy. He's doing great and everything's fine. I mean, this th- summer on on the big network. Yeah, I mean, no you one know? would watch it. Yeah, and th- there's an incredible thing too with like you know something that I think you have to face up to at some point if you are a writer in any capacity is the deep sadism because bare minimum yeah. with a story is you approach a group of people that are maybe going to listen to or consume your story and you go like, hey, I made up a guy, I'm going to make you like him and then I'm going to yeah. hurt him. Totally. Like, that's messed up. <laughs> yes, yeah, totally. And I think sometimes where people, DMs in particular, get a little bit stuck is like, so am I trying to beat the players? Am I trying to kill them? Like, this this idea that we are, you know, we hate we hate the players. Like, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come up with something terrible. Like, wait till you see it. Oh, And it's like, no, that's not the point. You know, the like I I never ever see myself as like playing against them. Like, oh, I'm a I'm a fuck them good. You know, what I mean? <laughs> at the same time, you don't do. You, you know, I, I think someone I, a great piece of advice I heard somewhere is that like we are trying to make them into heroes, mm-hmm. and you do that through creating challenge and opportunities for heroism, which is naturally, that. you know, mortally terrifying and lethal and you know but I always consider myself on their side but they are only as good as the epic journey they are able to go on I'm responsible for that journey or the opportunities for those journeys but it's not that I'm here to be like oh man you know I love that and I think that there's an excellent point there of I my, my like hottest take 
about D and D and stuff like this is fundamentally, I would argue, Dungeons and Dragons is collaborative storytelling with a game expertly stitched into the fabric of how that story is told. But I would say the larger element of the two is a shared story rather than a game. Yeah. And the reason I feel that way is there is nothing in the rule book that says a dog can't play basketball. I'm sorry. There is nothing in the rule book that says a... I you just, haven't read the dog basketball extension? <laughs> I'm sh- By the way, I'm sure somewhere out there someone was like, We've amended. <laughs> we figured out the dog basketball. Here's the deal. Free throws are 10 and up. You hit the rim. Pugs only. Uh, Pugs only. Uh, I love that. Uh, uh, but there's nothing in the rules that says a dungeon master can't take a first level party and drop 10 ancient dragons onto that party and yeah. just fucking roast them. There's in the rules that say you can't do that. So what's the thing preventing a DM from doing that? An understanding of good storytelling. That's the only thing yeah. stopping. So, so there is an obvious compact between dungeon masters and players to collaborate. And no matter how aggressive the DM is, the DM is fundamentally on the PC's side, unless they are an actual like mean person playing a trick on you yeah. to like kill your characters. In which case, don't go back to that DM again. Yeah. But there is a fundamental because other like if it was pure actual competitiveness in the game, the DM would win every single time because there's no limitations on their ability to present challenges. Yeah. The only limitation is self-imposed from an idea of supporting a narrative. Yeah. I mean, I, I think you are what you said is right that this is fundamentally shared storytelling first. You know, the reason that I think we incorporate dice and randomness is A, as adults, we don't feel comfortable sitting around and playing just pure pretend without rules because we feel like dildos two i think it gives us the ability to surprise ourselves like dms included like there's something that we don't love about being like so do i die do i kill it and your friend is just like "Mm, yeah you know like it doesn't it it feels filtered also through our emotions and our relationships of like you know i've kind of been fighting with adam and as a result this game kind of sucked you know, yeah. like this objective feeling, but the feeling also that the game can have this independent sort of Ouija board spirit, mm-hmm. you know, where we're like, none of us touched the dice and they rolled and the number came up on its own, allows it to take on a life of its own. There's this phenomenon that happens when you write a lot and have done it, done so for a long time as you have, so you might know this. Um, I will sometimes pull like an old script and read it and I don't remember how it ends. Yeah. And when you go through it, it feels like you are telling a story to yourself, which is so rad because it's like exactly a story that you would love, but without the part where you're like, but I know exactly what happens in it, how it goes. But so you read through it and it's like, and then the aliens come in and you're like, oh, I fucking love aliens. You know what I mean? Like, it's literally like you made it for you and you get the pleasure of not knowing what happens. D&D is like that feeling all the time where you like create a world and present it. And then these people start running around in it and going like doing things in it that you never imagined or opening being like, I want to go into the basement and you're like, there's a basement, you know? (laughs) And it's literally feels like your story is now telling itself to you. It's 
genuinely like it is kind of magical it's really really cool and i think the dice and gaming element augments that of being like oh my god mm-hmm. he he pulled that off or like he died yeah that's crazy like this story has genuinely taken on a life of its own beyond what we could just think up mm-hmm. you know a hundred percent and I love that. And I think also what I want to address there is, well, that yeah, that magic is so profound and so powerful. Um, I love the idea. I also want to ask a question before we move on to audience uh, audience questions, sure. which was um, looking at all these different forms of, of storytelling. And I love hearing, especially from someone that has written, that has been as prolific a writer as you and then has come to this game and taken off on it. I would love to hear like, what is what is something that you took from screenwriting, uh, both like screenwriting for television, screenwriting for film, that you were able to take kind of like off the cart and immediately apply to dungeon mastering? And is there anything that you've been able to take from dungeon mastering back to your profession? Yeah, I mean, the, the second part first, for sure, as far as D&D making me a better writer, which sounds a little bit like D&D has made me a better writer, but like D&D has made me a better writer. <laughs> um, and I think it's a little bit the stuff we touched on before of being incredibly generous in terms of just, and I say that as far as really thinking about less like, what do I have that I want to get off my chest? And more thinking about an intense focus on characters, an intense focus on an audience's experience of this, you know, like that really coming at it of like, what can I do for you? Mm-hmm. How, you know, how can I help? You know, yeah. it, it, that sort of feeling. As far as things that I take from TV and film, a lot. Like I am someone who's got a fair bit of experience in film and television, and I'm still like kind of a, a novice intermediate dungeon master, you know? So I 100% DM like a TV writer. You know, and like bring a lot from that. The things that I can think of is like really coming with me sort of wholesale are, you know, I tend to end sessions on a big twist because I want you to come back for the next episode. You know, (laughs) I don't know. I don't know if most people. It's a great piece of advice. I don't know if most people do that. I do it because it's sort of natural to me of like we just had a great episode of TV and I want us to sort of push into the next one. I tend to sort of think of things in parallel storylines that we're tracking. You know, like keeping those things, I've been like, it's a while since we've sort of checked in on this relationship. That's very much a sort of TV and show running mentality. Um, I also, I think where my TV and film side sort of kicks in is I tend to be like emotion and drama focused and a little rules light. And I've said this to you, like one of the things I'm working on as a DM is like getting into some of the nitty gritty of all of the mechanics that this game has. One of the beautiful things that I love about D&D is they're so like adamant about like, you don't like a rule, change it, keep it fun, do what works for your group. And I think I definitely embrace that spirit. That being said, I like try and force myself to really stay on like the, the deep mechanics of the game, but the TV and film side of me is like, if this twist is baller, I'm going I'm to make that happen <laughs> over being like, well, actually, you know what I mean? Like <laughs> yeah. that part will always yield to the part of me that's like, but guess what? You guys are brothers, you know? 
so that i think that's where where it sort of kicks in i love that i think that's great too because i there there i think every dm if they're being honest should admit to unless you're playing a very particular kind of game the game affords you a lot of ability to move narrative in the direction yeah. now if you want to be if you want to be super honest and above board and i i try to be that as much as i can i never yeah. want to force a story move but even legally and within the confines of the rule sure. there is so much you can do as a dm it's almost like on a skateboard like you can't actually take a 90 degree turn on a skateboard going very fast maybe if you're brennan you suck wow fuck um but you can steer you know like you can you not on a dime but you can like steer i'm actually good skateboarders can do that i'm bad at skateboarding yeah, see? uh but the idea of like there's a little bit of lean to it where you're like okay i can't jerk and hard turn or else i'm gonna crash and like ruin the mechanics of the game yeah but there's so much a dm can do you can grant advantage you can yeah, grant yeah yeah disadvantage Absolutely. you can like in terms of like ooh, there's something there's a really cool brass ring over here for us all to grab if we without breaking the rules steer in that direction sure. um which i really love and i think too there's something I think taking that idea of a love for the dramatic and understanding that that's what's going to make the game the most gratifying from writing to there is such a beautiful thing. I think for me, similar to what you're talking about, of that generosity of spirit, I feel like one of the biggest things to take from D&D into regular writing is also you do not forget. I'm thinking about like uh, spoilers, but I'm thinking about like the last season of Game of Thrones and the idea of like how character motivation is handled. And I feel like a couple sessions of DMing, you will not fuck up how important motivation is anymore. Sure. Because man is at the heart and soul of the game. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the other thing too is it really depends on who your players are. Like I am the world's greatest perfect dungeon master <laughs> in history for my players and my style really works for that i have a group of people that hadn't played dungeons and dragons before mm -hmm. you know we they i think also if you have a group of new players this might be something that's helpful chances are if you have people that haven't played DD, &D, they probably have watched film and tv right mm -hmm. so they tend to be responsive to drama and emotion and character and twists they're not going to be people that are bumped or, or bothered by being like, I think you might have skipped a, a mechanic there. Or, you know what I mean? Like, wait, I was supposed to have a reaction to this thing. It's not going to matter, What, frankly. You know, yeah, like what's sure. going to matter, especially in the early days, right, when people are acclimating, is the engagement with the story and the play style. So when you have people that are really accustomed to binge watching shows and and those kinds of narratives you know my play style works perfectly people are used to tv that's what i'm used to doing mm -hmm. and so there's a little bit of a hybrid there over time as people become more accustomed to the game mechanics are introduced you get a little bit of a deep dive you level up so you're in, in control of more mechanics personally it yeah. becomes a little bit more detailed if i were to go dm for a very different group they, it might pull them out of the game that certain things that they are very attuned to aren't necessarily being incorporated. So again, it's like you have to sort of come to your players where they're at. I would probably shift my play style a little bit for high level players that are very, 
you know, um, like mechanics and combat driven versus something that might be a little more, you know, character and heart and fun driven. I totally agree with that. I mean, every complex system of rules requires adjudication, right? Like there's a reason that you you can't just you can't just have laws. You need judges. You need people that are there and entire systems yeah. to like interpret. Like, okay, how are we going to interpret this? How yeah. is this? And especially with D and D, that's the role of dungeon master is to interpret those rules. And a lot of that is serving the community at the table. Look, I love a hard, strict, aggressive rule keeping when it serves the tenor at the table. If we're playing some grim, dark, hyper lethal campaign yeah. where it's like, this is, you will all likely die. Then I'm like, let me get every harsh rule clarification yeah, yeah, that yeah. I can. But I think that if your community is at the table is saying like, we want this to feel like a fairy tale or we want this to feel like an epic yeah. like a saga. Then I think as a DM, you go like, cool, we're going to adjudicate the rules. They're not all out the window, but we're going to adjudicate yeah. them with a bent in the direction of what we're all looking to achieve. Yeah, totally. Um, I love it. I'm going to go grab these audience questions. Uh, if you're watching this episode of Adventure Academy, you could have seen it earlier if you subscribed to Dropout. And I don't know why you haven't done that already. If you're watching this on Dropout, hey, way to go. Um, also, uh, all of our questions are submitted on our Dropout Discord server, which is available to our Dropout subscribers. So uh, thanks for submitting. Um, this first comes from Danny Doodles. Hey, Danny. Uh, uh, Danny's one of our uh, community's many uh, incredible fan artists. Awesome. Thanks for all the awesome fan art, Danny. Um, uh, Adventure Academy question. I volunteered to DM a one-shot for two friends who are new to D&D. The catch is, my friends are Twitch streamers, and they want to stream the game live. Obviously, we're not pulling in critical role levels of viewership, but I'm still super nervous that my standard way of DMing won't be enough for the audience. Is there anything I need to consider while DMing for an audience to make sure things run smoothly? Are there ways we can prepare to be more entertaining? Danny, thank you. No. I don't think honestly. No, I like I wouldn't change your style at all. Um the the whole point is if you're going to share this with people, you want to share what you're doing authentically. I think if you try and like make it entertaining, you're going to end up doing something that's going to feel inauthentic and often and, and people will sense that. I think if anything it's sort of the opposite, which is you want to fight the urge to feel self-conscious or self-aware. Um so I would just set up in a way that you feel really comfortable with. Also, like you said, these are people that are new to the game. They're going to be DMing for new players. So regardless of what they're used to streaming in their like other gaming life, you know, they're new players. So they'll need to be, you know, acclimated and made to feel comfortable. So I would just worry about, you know, setting up a session that makes new players feel excited and at home. And I think as a result, an audience will too. I think that's perfect. Yeah, that's correct. The, uh, authenticity and people, like, um, I don't know if anyone here's a, like, I've worked a lot as a camp counselor, as a tutor with young kids, and without fail, a kid being like, who wants to come play my with my toy yeah. that I brought? People are like, no. A kid just playing with a toy on their own, it's like, ooh, this is fun. I'm having a good time. Whoosh. Nothing is as intriguing as somebody just doing their own thing. Yeah. 
like it is a bizarre phenomenon how attracted people become to someone just doing their own thing authentically. Yeah. Uh, I think you, like you're saying, the more you try to like jazz hands, uh, uh, you may smack of, uh, in, in smack other people with those jazz hands. <laughs> Funny story, I did actually give a childhood friend a concussion and he had to go to the hospital because oh, I did jazz hands and I leapt through the air and I hit him with my elbow. This is why you shouldn't be giving skateboarding advice. <laughs> um, one thing I would say too is you'll probably have seen a lot of different versions of people's first sessions or session zeros or that kind of thing, but don't be afraid to throw people in in a way that sort of explains the rules or explains the characters as you go along. That's how I was first indoctrinated to the game way back in fourth grade. Um, I sat down, there was like a new kid in school, mysterious stranger, sat down with me and someone else in the playground and was just like, okay, you are suddenly like jumped by a couple orcs. And we were like, wait, what? Yeah. And he just got us started. We didn't roll up characters. I don't even think we had dice. He like rolled for us. But it was, we were just thrown in and people will acclimate and react naturally. And then as they need to learn bits along the way, you can do it. That's sometimes a really good way to get going because it involves, it, it skips the part where you have to, there, there can be a lot of kind of red tape in getting set up that you don't necessarily need. People will learn things in the moment and they'll, it'll stick a little bit better. A hundred percent. And I think too, let's, lest we forget, Part of the appeal of watching shows like this is to feel a part of something that is, um, for lack of a better word, intimate, to feel something that is personal yeah. and shared between people at the table. Uh, I, I used to talk all the time about one of the reasons that I loved, again, performing improv, which, again, I feel zero shame about uh, improv rules. Um, but one of the things I loved about it uh, was the feeling of... Um, improv is that because people would talk about like a connection to the audience and you really need that when you're doing something like stand up or you really need that when you're yeah. speaking directly to people one of the things that felt the most freeing to me about improv and I would tell my students they'd say like what, what about the audience what about the audience I would be like with as much respect as possible and I mean this from a place of deep love uh, fuck the audience you're, yeah. you're not there for them. The most freeing thing about improv is I go out on stage, I'm just here with my scene partner. I am I, There's nobody else in the entire world other than the person that I am sharing eye contact with and I'm yeah. there in that moment. And the audience, if they wanna be there and watch, if they wanna be voyeurs to that interaction, that's right. their business. They're invisible. Sure. Uh, to me, at least, and I know that sounds aggressive. I don't. I, I have all the love in the world for anyone that has watched any show I've ever been in. But in the moment, like I can't be thinking about people behind the camera. Yeah. When I'm there with my player character, like yeah. you're just the everything else melts away. Yeah. The other thing too is DMing is kind of chaotic and crazy, and you're not going to be thinking about it after about four minutes. The fact that you're streaming for people because you're going to be so busy like spinning plates with your players and engaging with it. So don't yeah. stress it and worry instead about what snacks you're going to get because that is the most crucial thing. And if you don't get them right, then this will all go down in flames <laughs> and you, you won't be friends anymore. It's true. <laughs> Sorry. Listen to Uncle Peter. He knows. Danny, you will you will, you will keep your friends. Uncle Peter is Uncle Peter is having a hard time. Um <laughs> 
Camera Nanana. Camera Nanana. Thank you so much for the question. Uh, I've seen a lot of people talk about a session zero where players get to explore their character a bit before running with them. We just mentioned this. Uh, I love this idea, but I've never seen it done. What should I know as a DM to make and implement a session zero? Um, this is a great question, Cameron and Anna. Thank you for asking it. Um, session zero, it, the, first of all, like we do session zeros for Dimension 20, which I think is extra important if you're gonna be doing a kind of like camera or stream D&D, to, to take some pressure off to have a session where people are uh, able to explore. It can be tricky. I've played D&D thousands upon thousands of hours of D&D. Every time you start a new campaign, it's a little squicky. It's a right. little like, hey, okay, we're getting into a new character, yeah. new world. Yeah, first gear is a little rocky. Yeah, yeah, always. So a session zero allows you to find character voices, to find the rhythm and beats of relationships between PCs. And a lot of what I recommend with, with session zero is uh, if you're doing a streaming thing, don't have the cameras on. If you are... Uh, not even if you're just doing a home game, I think it's important for Session Zero is to be potentially non-canonical. To say like, I think that's a, uh, you know, it's helpful to be like, hey, we're gonna work this out. If after this, you wanna change a feat, change a proficiency, right. this this doesn't have to be set in stone. This can be yeah. volcanic. We don't, we can at the end of this decide this is canon yeah. or decide that this didn't happen, that we're gonna change a character voice up or we're gonna change a backstory element. Yeah. Um, I, I think a session zero is also a great place to discuss boundaries, to discuss topics that you're not comfortable with coming up in the session. We talked about this within Erica Ishii's episode of like setting up like, hey, we're gonna have a safe word for if a, a situation in the game feels uncomfortable for people. Or mm -hmm. we're gonna have a card you can put up, just like slide across the table or flip up to just be like, ah, this went to a place that bums me out yeah. in real life yeah, yeah, too yeah. much. Um, uh, uh, for any reason, whether it's uncomfortability with the this like graphicness or the intensity of a scene for sure. whatever reason, you just be like, this is a no-go for yeah. me. Um, but I think session zeros are really helpful for those reasons because uh, it is nice to dip a toe into the water and ease totally. into that hot pool. Yeah, I, I love a session zero. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's great to sometimes give a little bit of structure if you can do a session zero, right? Um, especially because people are finding their character, finding, you know, um, sometimes like literally like physical voices and things like that. Um, so, you know, what we would say sort of like in an, in an acting context, like giving it a little bit of business, like giving people something to work with. Mm -hmm. So avoiding the, the trap of like, yeah, I don't know, you guys are all in a tavern, you hang out, you know, because that can sometimes start to put a lot of pressure on people to create an improv scene around it, but instead to find a way to structure this a little bit, you know, give them something to do that is, like you said, non-canonical, not necessarily part of it, but um, a way to start to find their footing as a party or a team. Um, but, you know, put something on the table that has to get done, whether it's literally the assemblage of the party and finding lodging like it can be dumb but giving them something to do that takes the pressure off of just like you know the the classic sort of session zero of like we all sit around and talk about our past you know it's um, really true i think something that, that is a pheno weird phenomenon i've seen with games too that people might not expect is backstory is great like written backstory for a character is great 
there is an actual necessity for lived memories of a character, meaning yeah. logged play experience as a character before they kind of come online as fully human. Sure. Uh, uh, there's no... There's no replacing the power of a character actually having a depth of memory from real life play. Yeah. Uh, and so in early sessions as characters are coming to life, they need, going back to what you've been talking about, which is structure. Um, it's really hard to know what your character wants to do when you have no memory of them. So much of our desire is also wrapped up in our memories of our past desires and past selves of who we were once upon a time. Ooh. Um, Ooh. <laughs> Man. So, like, you know, like momentum and velocity yeah. require trajectory. They require yeah. the idea of like where you came from. And so it can be really challenging for people to make in, like when you have brand new players and you're, if you just go, what do you want to do? They're like, um, I'm a fake person, so I don't exactly. know. Exactly. You know, you and I talk a lot about railroading mm -hmm. and avoiding it, whatever. This is the time that I would railroad a group mm -hmm. into something. You know, like this is primarily because it's not gonna matter, right? Like yeah. we're not railroading them into story, we're not railroading them into like a quest, we're not, this is not the campaign, but I would feel very comfortable throwing something in that's very concretely mine in terms of story that's just like, you know, the the D&D equivalent of like, they brought the characters, I'm gonna chuck them in an escape room and that's going to serve a session zero. You know, it's not quite a one shot, but it's almost is, you know, if they're going to have them all, you know, the classic session zero of like, you all meet up at a tavern, figure out how you got there, whatever, I'll set it on fire. Let them Love work it out. You know, um, that would be maybe a little bit more than I would want to do with a new party once we're actually into the campaign, because I want them to be picking the direction and doing their own thing and whatnot. But in a session zero, they might need a little bit of that from me to allow it, you know, let them meet each other as they, you know, pull each other out of the building. Um, and then they that. can go camp and talk and whatever. Um, but sometimes you gotta, you know, the, the campaign I'm in now that I'm running, they, we started it with them coming to consciousness, like waking up like ch chained up in a in a jail Love sort of in adjacent that. cells with with no memory of how they got there you gotta end media res folks you gotta start look in at that that's that that bfa and screenwriting paying um, off right there no i truly believe that i think what can, what can happen is a lot of times like you'll be like well it's the beginning so it should feel like a beginning and let's start soft and slow and ease in and i think that can be a mistake sometimes i think like it doesn't need to be crazy although it can be but start a beginning kind of should feel like a middle in some ways you yeah. drop people boom and we're going yeah. whether that's something a little bit softer just like oh we're starting by establishing what the character wants or right. we're starting in the like rather than being like you know hey you're starting and you're a little kid on a farm and you want to adventure starting with like the whole town having like coming out and being like don't go jimmy we don't want you to go on this big adventure right, right, like right, the right. kids all you know it's like oh it's already happening like yeah we're because i think it helps people get into character to be like oh people are already reacting to something yeah. going on 
And I mean, fuck it. If you want to go whole hog, I think one of my fa- I, my friend Connor Gillespie that I played with my whole life. One of my favorite introductions. He was playing this like orc swashbuckler, and we started his scene with I think we I started his character introduction with a successful attack roll against him. The first line of narration was in the pitched deck of the ship on the middle of yeah, the storm. Great. The rastling reaches out and slugs you across the thing, and the captain says, "Shantar, make sure they don't get the amulet." Love it. And he's like, "Got it." <laughs> Great. Well, also, it's, you know, one of the questions we always are, like, telling people is, you know, just ask yourself, what would blah, 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 your character, like, what would they do? That only works if there is a situation that kind of necessitates that question, right? It can't be like, you know, you sit down at a table. What would Brennan do? It's like, I don't know to fucking sit at this table, you know? Um, So you do sometimes have to provide a way to get there. That can be um, a great session zero that really has people amped for session one. I love it. Um, uh, last one, this is from Blashley333. Thanks, Blashley. Hey, Blash. Um, I had a regular problem with players inviting friends without warning. Mm. Playgroup has been up to 12 before. And because I didn't want to leave them out, I let them play. Well, that's You're nice. very generous, as we were talking about. I have on a few occasions asked my friends to stop bringing people to the D&D nights. Because it makes it much harder for me to create interesting, fun stories with that many people. They have listened, but the people who have made characters uh, still come occasionally, and this makes it hard for me to manage the people and find ways to bring people in and out of stories in a way that doesn't break immersion. Do you have any tips to make more adaptable scenarios for the number of people present? Now, Blashley, we're going to answer your question, which is there in the very last line. Do you have any tips to make more adaptable scenarios for the number of people present? But there's a lot of stuff earlier in this that we should address, yeah. too. There's a whole bunch going on here. Um, I feel for you, first of all. Um, it's cool that lots of people want to come play, by the way, and it's cool that you're letting them play. It is tough. My first instinct, and you should feel free to disagree with me on a lot of this, and I have a feeling also that you'll have some cool solutions because you've helped me with some issues that are sort of similar in the past. Mm-hmm. One is you want to put some of the onus of solving these problems on your players. Not in a fuck you way, in a cool way. Meaning, if you've got people that now have established characters in this world, but aren't consistently playing, they're showing up and they're like, hey, I want to play, I haven't been here for a few weeks, make it up to them to figure out where they've been and why they're back in a way that doesn't, like you said, break immersion. Like, if you feel like you're like, oh my god, they're back and I have to figure out why that makes sense because we've you know the party's moved to a totally different geographic location and now they want to show up and i have to figure that no you don't it's their character so it's okay to be like that's great come play you have to figure out you know you're showing up and and tell us where you've been and how you got here and make a really cool thing that's where that piece we've been talking about of like you're building something of pieces they brought so have them bring pieces and and tell you that's sort of the first bit the other part is how you corral a game of a large amount of players which is a pretty common dm issue because it just brings up issues of like initiative you know like large large combats and those kinds of things that's sort of a separate problem which is just a big table and that's hard it's really hard and also here's the thing your players all know they all know that there's a problem because nobody wants to if if your players are with what nine to 12 players around a table if you're doing a regular combat people are probably waiting what like 
an hour to like 90 minutes between turns. You know what I mean? Like if you're if you have 12 players yeah, at the table, wow. like if I if people if players are waiting for a turn for 90 minutes, no one's probably thrilled about like what's going on. Sure. So I think you can approach them and say like, hey guys, our table's a little too big. And there's a lot of logistical solutions for that. You can say like, hey, there's, our table's really big. Um, uh, we might want to restrict this to people that are really committed and can be here for more than 50% of the sessions. Yeah. If there's always someone coming in like once or twice a month that's like, you can be like, hey, I love you, you're, uh, you're a pal. Maybe we can figure something else out because I don't think this is working. Right? Yeah. Um, I think what you can also sometimes do is go like, I only have so much bandwidth. This is too many players for me to handle. Everyone needs to be chill with that because you're doing the work as a dungeon master and you need to be able to set your own boundaries. This is not a situation where you're like Bilbo and a bunch of dwarves show up and you have to feed them all out of some weird sense of politeness. You can actually be you're like, no Bilbo. Bilbo needed to set boundaries and you can succeed where Bilbo failed. Um, but I think what you can do is you can say, hey, I can't run for this many players at once. Um, we're gonna split up into two groups, so we'll do alternating weeks. You know what totally. I mean? Like, you should definitely feel comfortable, you know, like running things scheduling-wise, and mm -hmm. at least people should be able to give you a fair heads up on if they're planning on bringing someone or those kinds of things. Like, that's a fair adult ask again it's cool that people want to come and whatever but it would be nice if you sort of knew one thing um i would throw out i don't know if you're having this problem because it's not sort of specifically in there but if you are having trouble with people showing up and then needing to like roll up characters which takes forever and bogging things down something that's not a bad solution is to have a stack of like pre-rolled up pre-gen characters that you can have that you can just slap out to people so when there are guests of a manageable size that you're into you can be like cool you're gonna uh be this person here they are and go so that you don't have the additional time of someone showing up and then wanting to build a character for forever and having a million questions they can even hold on to it and have it be consistent character creation is another thing that can bog it down you can also do and this is something that brennan taught me a while back it was really helpful is have them play you know an npc or a side character that you've been running or you know again that sort of goes back to like offloading a bit of your work onto someone don't feel like everything is your responsibility to figure out for them um find a way for them to sort of work with you as well it doesn't necessarily solve the problem of like long combat turns and everything but it will i think help you feel like you're spinning plates a little bit less absolutely uh to answer your your actual end of paragraph question other than addressing the sort of issues we see with your situation in general i would say the simple solutions to what you're talking about is to uh potentially starting a new campaign is rough but maybe restructure your campaign to be more what we call a west marches campaign right which means that it's structured to allow players and their characters to come and go right the original west marches was sort of like i think a mercenary company or something like that mm -hmm. so it was like oh so and so is not here yeah they got they booked a job up north sure and now they're back down here i ran a west marches style campaign because i was running a game at a summer camp where any right. staff member that was working that week, I wanted to allow them to right. play. So geographically, it all happened in one city and was focused on crimes, right? right? It was focused on like, here's the heist, yeah. we're all done, right? Um, 
in those instances, I think, so in other words, the best way to make it easy on yourself is to structure the story around the logistical situation. You can't do the fellowship of the ring if you've got 15 fellows in the fellowship and the lineup changes right. every single week where it's like, how did you get to the bridge of Khazad Doom? It's like, wild man, I fell in a barrel back in Bree and I guess the right. river wound up. He, that, Have we met? Have we met? We haven't <laughs> Matt yet have we oh yeah this has been great you're in here too yeah yeah exactly um so i would say uh try to f you can make a single location quest where it's all in one city or one place and you can design the adventures around the idea of what's a type of adventurer yeah. where the lineup changes all the time and that's cool mercenary company is a fun one uh thieves guilds another fun one uh you know magic police force if you want to do like a arcane law and Love order it. you know like what what allows that kind of thing to happen but um uh there's a bunch of solutions there and i hope that you find one to your issue. i think also and this is sort of the last thing i'll piggyback off of that is it's good to get a sense also of what your players are into they might like this kind of flowy not necessarily hyper immersive style and you might be looking for something that's a little more, you know, for consistent players and it never breaks immersion. And so you might be on a little bit separate pages with that and you might need to meet them where they're at in terms of exactly what Brennan's describing, which is like the type of campaign it is and structuring it to allow the type of players that you have or also then playing with a group that has a little bit of a different style. So sometimes you just need to sort of um, take the temperature of what people are also kind of looking for in their game. I think that's completely accurate is getting on the same page with them. Uh, and I'd say the other side of that coin is no DM is like an indentured servant. So if you are in a play style because of your players that you really do not enjoy, you can express that and be like, hey, if we're gonna do this sort of looser style, if someone else wants to DM, I have a hard time coming up with stories for this type of play. Sure. That's legit. Uh, or if you have you know, four friends in that 12 person group that are also kind Kind of itching for like no I want a more like committed game mm. it is not wrong for you to be like hey we're looking to get a more committed game if that's not what yeah. people are into that's okay you do not owe people running a weekly game for them right unless they're paying you in which case you know in which case unionize with other dms in your area and get a good yeah. contract also great friend group you got let me know, <laughs> let me know where that's at <laughs> Guys, this has been Adventuring County. This has been my guest, Peter Warren. Peter, thank hey, you so much for being Absolutely. here. Absolutely. Thank you so much. It was awesome. We'll catch you guys next time. Woo! This has been a Dropout Podcast. For video of today's show, plus more exclusive series, go to dropout.tv.